is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. If you've got a Bible with you, would you like to turn to 1 Kings in the Old Testament? And chapter 16, 1 Kings chapter 16, if you've got a Bible. And I'm going to read from verse 29, 1 Kings 16 and verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Esbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria, Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son Abiram, and he set up its, gate, its gates at the cost of his youngest son Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. It's just a little passage that introduces us there to one of the heroes of the Old Testament, Elijah. A hero who did remarkable things, and yet, although we can uh, admire him and so on, the New Testament kind of cuts him down to size in a way. Uh, in the book of James, in the New Testament, James chapter 5 and verse 17, um, it says of Elijah, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So we can look at this man Elijah, this remarkable man who did incredible things, and then we see that Elijah was a man just like us. We might look at ourselves in the mirror and say, well, I don't really feel I'm exactly like him, but that's what it says. He was an ordinary man. But he was an ordinary person who prayed. And that's the point. An ordinary person who prayed and made a difference. And of course, the situation that we briefly looked at there needed someone who was going to make a difference. Uh, 
Uh, You may or may not be familiar with Old Testament history, but it introduces us to, just gives us a kind of little snapshot in from verse 29 of chapter 16 of what was happening among God's people. His The nation had divided into two. There's the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. That itself is tragic. God's people divided because they've they've moved away from God. And then the, the camera zooms in, as it were, onto the northern kingdom, Israel, and we discover the name of the king, Ahab. And... It tells it like it is. Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And among the things that he did, he married Jezebel, a name to send a shiver down your spine. And she introduces the worship of a foreign god, Baal. And this, this is Israel, the, God's people. They're now worshipping, officially sanctioned worship of another god, A temple is built for this other god. There are fertility symbols. And it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. And in this time of great decline, it then refers to this guy, Heel, who rebuilt Jericho. And we might say, well, so what? Well, of course, if you look back into Old Testament history, When God's people, the Hebrews, were released out of captivity in Egypt, they'd been there for generations, second-class citizens, a slave nation, God sets them free and moves them towards the promised land. As you know, they found it hard to believe God. In fact, they just didn't believe God. And so they wandered in the desert until that whole generation had died and then Led by Joshua, they move in at last to the promised land. The first city that confronts them is Jericho. And just about everyone surely knows the story of what happened when they arrive in Jericho. That they are uh, just not an army, they're just a kind of rabble people. And they're confronted with a fortified city. How on earth are they going to take that? Well, they're going to take it God's way, and God's strategy for them is simply to walk round and round the city for six days. And God says something significant. He says, walk round the city silently. The people in Jericho, then, there's this rather spooky thing happening of a great horde of people marching silently round the outside of the city and then going away. The next day, it happens again, and the day after that, and so on, for six days. As far as Israel are concerned, I reckon that God tells them not to say anything because if they were allowed to speak, they're going to look at these walls and say, there's no way we're going in there. And then the the buzz would kind of go around, we can't possibly do this. And so unbelief could well have settled in again. So God wisely says, because whatever God says is always wise, God said, don't say a word. So they walk around the city. Then finally, the trumpet blasts. They all give a shout. The walls collapse. God has won this victory. And then God says, because it's his victory, the city, as it were, is to be dedicated to him. And Joshua 6, 26, at that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. 
Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. So the city devastated, given over to God, and then this curse. If anyone rebuilds this city, it'll be at the cost of his firstborn son and his youngest son. Great fear then is attached to it. God has done something remarkable and woe betide anyone who tries to rebuild what God has brought down. And now in Ahab's time, they don't care about God anymore. They're not interested. They're going after another God. And that's just ancient history. Who cares about all of that? And so Hiel rebuilt Jericho. Didn't care about God and finds God is alive. And he laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son. God isn't mocked, but they don't care about him. And it's into that setting that Elijah, a man just like us, comes on the scene. And we see in Elijah a man who was, in a way, unaffected by all that's happening around him, and in another way, profoundly affected by everything that's happening around him. Ahab is unaffected in as much as he's not following the trends. He's not influenced by what's happening. He's, he, he still believes in God. His belief system is shaped by God. And he's, he's not affected by the thinking of the people around. And so he is able to bring God's word into it. But in another way, he is profoundly affected by it. He cares about what's happening. Elijah's a man just like us, and he prayed. So he's not shaped by what's happening around him. But he is affected in as much as what's happening makes him pray. And he seeks God. Praying for probably about six months before, before th- this incident when he actually confronts Ahab. A remarkable man living in a difficult time. Now, of course, this is very relevant to us today because we are living in difficult times. We're living, obviously, we're well aware of it in a nation that just regards the worship of God as belonging in the past. Things that once were important are not important anymore. Standards that once were very clear are now marked. And there's the official sanction of things that God forbids and so on. We're, we're aware, aren't we, of, of how society is changing. Just in the last 10 years, there's been dramatic change. The last 25 years, change out of all recognition. And we can either be influenced by it, so our standards change, and we just follow several steps behind what's happening around us, or else we can remain true to God, and we're affected in as far as we just pray, and we seek God. And of course, at this present time, with all the stuff that's in the news now, of things that once were thought secure, banks collapsing, the whole financial system around the world in disarray, what's our position Are we just affected by that and gripped with fear? Wondering what's going to happen next? Who's going to lose their job next? What's going to go down next? If you've got any savings, 
what's going to happen to them? Do you just try and draw them out and put them under the mattress? Or what do you do? Anything can happen. Are we just following the, the, the fear that is around? Or are we unaffected, but affected enough to seek God? And if we seek God, what do we pray? What do we do? Well, Elijah comes on the scene here and he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. We see here God's method is invariably to raise up someone. Someone who's going to bring about change. Someone who's going to make a difference. God always works through people. God loves people. God made people so that he can have relationship with them. That was why he created Adam and Eve in the first place, to have relationship with them. And God made us for relationship with himself. And God works through people. So here he's raised up this man, Elijah. And through Old Testament history, you see the judges, you see prophets, you see kings, people that God uses in the New Testament Then obviously the Son of God comes, announced by a man, sent from God, John the Baptist, and so on. We see time and again, God working through people. And here, he's working through Elijah. Now, of course, God is present in the world through people, but it's a corporate man. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, a corporate entity, not just one hero like Elijah, but now a kind of corporate hero in the world, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, witnesses of him, where in the world today to make a difference. Of course, we can just merge in with the world and no one knows about us, or we can be like this man. And the scripture says, he was a man just like us. So we need to follow his example. We need to see, to learn from him. And he comes Virtually out of nowhere, we read about him. He's from Tishbe in Gilead. You think, oh, that's helpful. Where on earth is that? He just emerges on the scene. We don't know anything about his childhood or anything about his background. And it's unimportant. What is important is that he's been prepared by God for this moment. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in many ways, in this country, is off the scene. The average person, okay... It's great to see people here, but and no disrespect, but if you walked out into the center, right into the center of Derby, unless this is right in the center, I don't know, but if you went where there are people and said, what, what can you tell me about Jubilee Church Derby? People probably would say, never heard of them. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you are famous all across Derbyshire, in which case you'd be highly unusual because most people are unaware of the church, any church. They're not aware of it. In fact, most people think church is irrelevant. Okay, around this time of the year, you see all the alpha advertising, but does that register with people? Do people realize, hey, there's a vibrant church around the nation? People, people don't think church anymore. But the time will come When what has been hidden, what has been obscure, what has seemed irrelevant, is going to suddenly emerge and make an impact, as happened with this man Elijah. His history is unknown, but suddenly he emerges on the pages of history 
to make a difference. God has his man. God has his answer. God will never turn away from the world that he has made and let it just get on with what it's chosen. And here they have dismissed God from their thinking, but God hasn't dismissed them from his thinking. And God has raised up this man who's going to make a difference. So he comes out of nowhere. And a man, in many ways, unsuited for the task that God has given him. He comes from Tishbe and Gilead. As I say, we don't know an awful lot about it, but what we do know about Gilead is that it's wild, rugged terrain. He's not a sophisticated city dweller. Certainly not the kind of guy who would normally get an audience with the king. He's unsuited to this, apart from the fact he knows God. And we don't need to be significant people in the world's eyes. What we do need is to know God and to be ready to do what God gives us to do. And Elijah was a man like that, a man just like us. So we see the country in decline, but while the country is going downhill... A young lad is growing to manhood and a young man is being taught by God, ready to emerge. We see decline on the one hand and gradual development on the other. Off the scene, the country rejecting God, turning away to other faiths. And then there's a man who is seeking God, ready to emerge at God's time. And really that parallels the church. Over the last, as we said, over the last 25, 50 years, the nation has gone into rapid decline morally, and now other gods are regarded as being other religions as equally valid. Indeed, you mustn't ever speak against any. We have to accept them all, just as they were doing there in Israel. And we see things that God hates now being publicly advocated. And what are our children being taught in school? It's horrendous what is happening. While all of that is happening, God's building his church. Off the scene. Unknown. People are coming through who believe in God and who are seeking God. Being taught by God and trained by God. People who are not affected by what's happening around in the sense of it shaping them but affected in the sense that they're seeking God about it all. And so Ahab comes, and he makes this amazing, bold statement. As the Lord, he comes to the king, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. A number of things there in what he says. First of all, he refers to the Lord, and uh, in, the, in the NIV, the version that I'm using, that word Lord is all in capital letters, which indicates that it's translating the actual name of God, Yahweh, or as it's popularly known, popularly known, Jehovah, the, the personal name of God. And that name, it means the God of covenant, the I Am, The eternal God who doesn't change, who is in covenant relationship with his people. The unchanged, unchanging, sovereign Lord. And that's who he's referring to. The Lord, and he says, the God of Israel. 
Israel has rejected the Lord. Israel has gone after other gods. But no, he's a God of covenant. And his people may reject him, but he doesn't reject them. And he's the sovereign Lord. He's the God of Israel. And he's alive. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives. They're worshipping a God who is not alive. They're worshipping Baal. There's an idol set up in a temple, and they call that their God. And, of course, that's human nature. Human, human beings like to see something. They want objects that they can bow to. Many times over the years, I've, I've been to India and uh, working with the churches there. And all over India, you see, uh, because of the dominant Hinduism, you see Hindu little temples just by the roadside or whatever. And you look in and there's a God. And you see people going in and they uh, perform their act of worship and then they go about their business. But there's this thing. This is totally lifeless. It's been manufactured by people. It's being put there, but people worship it. That's human nature. People want to see something. And they, and they want to worship a thing. But God lives. We don't represent God with any idol. We don't need anything to bow to. Now, incidentally, uh, one of the things I've noticed over the years is when you, uh, we, when you have a funeral, hopefully you don't have many, but when you have a funeral, the undertakers come in. And because they're used to being in places of worship, they want to bow to something. And I've found what they bow to is the screen. <laughs> it's the only thing around to look at. So they sort of look at it and bow. I think, yeah, people want, they want to bow to something. Uh, but we, we, we don't represent God in any way. He's the living God. He's alive. Invisible, but alive. And Elijah knows the living God as the Lord, sovereign I am, lives. He, and he says, whom I serve, or a better translation would be, before whom I stand. So he knows the living God. And the second thing about this living God is, he says, before whom I stand. Whom I serve, it says. But it's, it's, he, he knows what it is to stand in the presence of the Lord. That explains who this man is. As he's living in a nation of decline, but he stands before God. Reference to knowing God, intimacy with God, prayer. But, but particularly God's presence a similar expression is there in uh, one of the Gospels in, in Luke chapter 1. As the announcements are being made about the miracle um, of the birth of Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 1. Um, but it, this is uh, actually the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist before the announcement. It's a time when announcements are being made from heaven. And the announcement is made to this aging man, Zechariah, that he and his wife are going to have a, a, a son and Zechariah, an angel has come to say this and Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? You'd have thought if an angel comes and tells you something, you'd believe it, but Zechariah didn't. So there's this angel there telling him, he says, how can I be sure of it? Uh, and the, the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Oh, a man who's uh, an angel who stands in the presence of God. You listen to this guy. 
Well, Elijah's like that. He stands in the presence of God. It's not just coming with his own thoughts. He's a man who lives before God. Now I said, today God has a corporate man, the church. And our privilege is to stand before God. But there's the problem. There's the problem that for many Christians there is little sense of being able to stand before God. There's a, I often say to people, if you could visualize God, which is not a good thing to try and do because as soon as you visualize him, you've limited him. But if you could visualize God's face and you visualize him looking at you, what expression would be on his face? And for many people, if they think of it, they think the expression is likely to be disapproval, a frown. After all, look, look at all we've done wrong. Look at all the promises we've made and we've not kept them. Look at, uh, so we can list all the reasons why there should be a frown on God's face, a look of disappointment, look of disapproval. And so if that is our image of God and how he views us, then standing in his presence, well, at best we get down on our faces in his presence, at best we grovel in his presence or maybe even just stand at a distance and watch other people approach because really... We can't come before God. But of course, our gospel is precisely the opposite of what many people feel. Just hear uh, their familiar words, but hear what Paul says. And it's uh, in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Paul speaks there about standing in the presence of God, and he says, we stand because we have been justified through faith. We all know, don't we, that when we were first saved, we received Christ as our Savior, we repented of our sin, we acknowledged our sin, we asked God to forgive us on the basis of what Jesus had done. And we believe, don't we, that all our sin, and we've been singing about it and thinking about it in our worship time, that all that we have ever done wrong, past, present, and future, was imparted to Jesus, put on Jesus, he identified with it, and all God's holy anger against our sin was visited on his son. And Jesus, on the cross, a sinner because of our sin, is cut off from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the father is angry with his son, because his son is our substitute. And then the cry, it's finished. Our sin is fully punished. Three days later, Jesus is alive again, indicating this was no ordinary death. 
This is miraculous. And what he has done has been accepted by Almighty God and God raises his son back to life again. He was delivered over to death, Paul says, for our sins and raised to life for our justification. So we know that as far as God is concerned, everything we've ever done wrong, past, present, and ever will do wrong in the future, is punished in Christ. We have been justified, not through what we've done, but through faith. That is the miracle of this message, and it it flies in the face of everything that we think reasonable. Which is why... We talk about amazing grace. It's illogical because we know we're guilty. We know we've done things. And if we just had a few moments right now to think of things we've done wrong, we'd all get totally depressed. We know we've done these things. But God says, you're acquitted. Not guilty. That's the verdict from the throne. Justified through faith. Our sin is handed over. And Jesus' righteousness is handed back. And so, we have peace with God. It's talking about an end to conflict. An end to God's hostility towards us. Therefore, he says, because of what Jesus has done, this is the logical conclusion, we have peace with God. I guess none of us has come here this morning having lived a perfect life this week, this past week. For people who are regularly part of this church, you saw one another last Sunday and now you're here again. Between those two meetings, not one, of, not one of you has lived a perfect life. Now, I'm not insulting you. I'm just saying you're human. And you know that. And so we can come and we can think, if we think about anything, we can feel condemned. Maybe that's too strong a word. But just not good enough. And many, many Christians live under this sense of not good enough. We don't pray enough. We don't read the Bible enough. We're not as zealous to tell people about Jesus as we feel we should be. And furthermore, we say things we shouldn't say. We certainly think things we would hate anyone else to ever know about. And all of that happens. If you've got children, maybe you've got cross with them in a way you know you shouldn't have done. And maybe in any, some relationship, things have, you know, we, we know things go wrong. And so many people live under this sense of, I'm not good enough, God is disappointed with me. And here it says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Not groveling, not face down, but standing Because God has shown grace to us. It's totally undeserved by us and earned by Christ. And so we, failures that we are, can stand before God. Not arrogantly, but gratefully because of the amazing grace of God. 
The devil, of course, is called the accuser of the brothers. And the devil is always there to slander us, to point the accusing finger. And sometimes well-meaning Christians can help him on his way by also making comments and pointing the accusing finger. You shouldn't do that. I'm surprised to see you did that. I would never have thought that of you. And all these things can all put our heads down. And so God's people so often come along to worship him, but the, the, the words are there on their lips, in their hearts, they're just feeling kind of cold and dead and failed again. And this says, no, we stand in grace. That is God's favor permanently towards us because of Jesus, because we are justified through faith. We can stand before God with our head held high, not proudly, but in faith. We've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So Elijah says, a man who's just like us, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. It's because of his confident relationship with God that he's got confident in a ti- confidence in a time of crisis. And we are living in a time of crisis. And who knows what's going to happen next. Elijah is not optimistic saying, well, actually, because I believe in God, I'm sure everything's going to get better. No, he says, there's not going to be dew nor rain in the next few years. He's not optimistically looking on the bright side. He's actually saying, it's going to get worse. How's he got confidence? Well, because he's got confidence before God. And we're living in a day when established things are crumbling. You know, there used to be a saying, as safe as houses... houses, not that safe right now. Or, as safe as the Bank of England, was another saying. Well, at the moment, the Bank of England is surviving, but who knows? And things that we've been sure of are suddenly, rapidly collapsing. As Christians, we say, now, let's pray that it will get better. Or, no. God said, it's in the Scripture... I will shake what can be shaken so that what can't be shaken will remain. And what can't be shaken? His church, his word, his purposes. And, we, and then we can say, well, if everything's going to be shaken, if, if the housing market is going to collapse, if I could lose all my savings, if my, the company that I work for could actually just suddenly go bust and I suddenly find myself out of work... And you know, if all that can happen, what's going to happen? How are we going to survive? What if there are power cuts? What if, what, 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 what? And we start thinking panic. But if we stand before God, Elijah's saying, as the Lord, the, the, the sovereign covenant God lives before whom I stand, it's going to get worse and worse, he says. He's got confidence in the, in the crisis because he's got confidence before God. And God wants you and me to know our place with him 
So our security is in his covenant love for us. So that when there is, as it were, neither dew nor rain, we're not phased by that. We're not thrown back. The Apostle Paul says, I know what it is to have plenty, but I also know what it is to have nothing. But he said, I can do all that through him who gives me strength. He says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And that word content means kind of self-contained. And he's self-contained because he knows God. And so his, the source of his confidence is within him and what happens around him doesn't add or take away from that situation. His contentment is his relationship with God. Elijah's a man like that. The Lord, the God of Israel, before whom I stand. He lives. I stand before him. Now everything's going to go wrong, he says. But he's confident. Indeed, he says, there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. He's supremely confident. And of course, it happens. Devastation. And we see how God looks after Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kareth ravine. You'll drink from the brook, which of course will dry up eventually, but you'll drink from the brook. Oh, and I've ordered ravens to feed you there. <laughs> it's amazing. And so the ravens come in. Not exactly meals on wheels, but meals on wings. And then the brook dries up and God says, you're going to go to a widow woman. Widow, widow women in a time of famine don't have anything to offer. You know, a, a widow woman's going to look after you. And so God, the God who lives, looking after his servant in the midst of a crisis. How do we face the news? How do we face what's happening? And when I say, I believe it's going to get a whole lot worse, does that strike fear? Or do you just think, I don't believe this guy? Well, feel free not to believe me, but I'm just saying, I believe it's going to get worse. And I believe that things are going to go into serious decline. I, d I think we're only just beginning to see what's going on. And so what we have seen so far is that every political solution, in quotes, that is offered within a week is being shown not to work. And so they're throwing whatever they can at it. But actually, no, it's in a downward spiral. And where's the spiral going to end? God lives. And God is not mocked. And here we have a situation where the nation has turned away from God. God intervenes. And his intervention is to stop the rain, which of course means no food, no harvest, for three years. But that's God. Of course, leading to that mighty confrontation on Mount Carmel when... God sends fire from heaven and the people say, God is God, the Lord, he is God. God turning the nation back to himself. God wants to turn people to himself. And we need to be confident in God because we're standing before him, because we're confident in grace. How sure are you of the grace of God for you? But you know God loves you. You know the God who is from everlasting 
to everlasting is a God whose love is from everlasting to everlasting. He doesn't change. And if he has included you in his son, if he has saved you, that's forever. And you can come boldly before God. And you can come and know him. you confident in that? And that that is your confidence if everything around you crumbles. Yes, but I know God, the God who lives. And you stand before him, you live before him, and you see what's happening around. You're not affected with the fear that grips other people, but you're affected because you're praying. And suddenly, you've got answers for people around. Elijah here is a man with answers. Elijah here is a man, he comes to the king and he says, there's going to be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And you think, hey, who's in charge here? Come to Ahab, who suddenly kind of seems to be cut down to size. And Elijah's in charge here. Well, yeah, because he lives before God. And the nation needs to see people who know the living God, who are kind of not in charge, but they know what's going on. When everyone else is saying, what is going on? So we know. It's God. God's doing it. And it's a time for people to seek the Lord. Ahab is confident in his relationship with God and he's confident in God's word because what he actually brings to Ahab is precisely what God had said. Further back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 17, or verses 16 and 17, the law of Moses, it says, Be careful or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain. The ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. So God had said, if you turn away to other gods, there'll be no rain. Elijah knows that. He's confident in God's word because he stands before God and he brings God's word into the situation and And things happen as he says. A man just like us, he prayed. And it didn't rain. Then he prayed. And the rain came. We are called to know God. We are called to believe his word. And we're called to declare God's wisdom. That's the role of the church. The people with answers. The people who have got the wisdom of God we're called to see God's kingdom advance and we're called to see people summoned into that kingdom. That is our calling. And it's when there's darkness around that the light that is in the church becomes most visible. And we're living in such a time. And God wants people then who stand in his presence. We're praying. But praying with confidence, praying knowing that God will listen to little us and God is going to hear us and we're hearing him and we're walking securely so that people will look at us and say, well, what gives you your confidence? You just lost your job or you just lost all your savings or isn't your house going to be repossessed? Oh, yeah, but I've got a treasure somewhere else where that's safe, the bank of heaven. Uh, there's no, 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 nothing gets lost there. My treasure's in heaven. And, and so we're walking through. How can you be like that? Well, I know the living God. 
You say, I, I couldn't be like that. Yeah, well, then we need to come to God and understand his grace and stand in grace. You look at the Apostle Paul who said that about standing in grace and you look at the things that happened to him. He had five floggings and each flogging 39 lashes. Happened five times. Shipwrecked. I mean, he lists all the things that happened. You think, if, if one of those things happened to me, I would think, does God really love me? But all of that happened to him, and he knew God loved him. His contentment is in standing in grace. And all of that can happen. But he's walking through it with, with God. And it's a time for the church to grow up. It's the time for us to stop just being self-centered. I want God to demonstrate to me that he loves me by, by looking after me. God has demonstrated that he loves us by giving his son to die for us. And so we're confident in that. And we grow up and we walk maturely through all that can, de- can, can disintegrate around us. Because we're standing before God. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, it's going to get worse, he says. Crucial to it, then, is for us to be detached from what's happening around in terms of the values of people around, the belief systems of people around, to be detached from that and to be very clear on God, his character, his grace, his word, and his sovereign protection. And then we're ready to emerge when the hour comes. We're ready to be there when society needs to hear what we've got to say. Yeah, we work at it. We're not just silent until that time. But the time is going to come when the church in this nation suddenly is seen to be the answer, not an irrelevancy. That time is coming. God is stripping other things away for that time to come. We've got to be ready for that hour. We've got to be ready for it. Not just feeling macho, but knowing the grace of God. Secure in that grace. And so the preparation starts now. The preparation starts this morning. I say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm believing God. I'm standing in grace. I know I've got peace with God. And I know God lives. And I'm walking with him. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray first of all for people who do know a large measure of fear and insecurity. And Father, I ask you, O God, that your voice will come to them more loudly and, Lord, more uh, with more confidence, O God, than every other voice, the voice of fears, the things that people around are saying. I ask you, Lord, for people, even this morning, to, to step out of fear and into faith. I pray, O oh God, for people who are already seeing some things go wrong. And uh, Lord, you know, you know the issues that confront people. And I ask you, O oh God, 
for people to come to a place of faith to say, if everything collapses, I know God. And I know God is for me. And I know that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I pray, Holy Spirit, will you impart faith to those who have known fear? Then, Father, I want to pray for those who struggle with a sense of being not good enough. Pray for those who have come here even this morning feeling uh, their feelings tell them they're far from you. Lord, I ask you, Holy Spirit, will you reveal the truth of being in Christ, seated with him in heavenly places, loved with everlasting love. Lord, I ask you for a revelation of grace that we would never be good enough. No one ever has been good enough apart from the spot, the Son of God, and we're in him. Pray for, for freedom from guilt, freedom from disqualification, and a confidence. We stand before God. We stand in grace. And Father, together we say, Lord, let your church arise. Let your church emerge. Lord, let a disintegrating society see that which is going to last forever. We say, Lord, Oh God, in a nation that doesn't know what to do next, we pray, let there be, let there come soon a willingness to hear your word and to turn back to you. Thank you, Lord. You haven't turned your back on us, although the nation has turned its back on you. And we say, oh God, arise. And Lord, we pray, let the church come through, declaring the wisdom of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Sunday morning.